The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we thank you for how good the good news is. How the good news of the gospel is the best news. That you know us fully and completely. That spiritually we stand before you naked and yet you see all of our warts and you love us and cherish us and delight in us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're a good father that cares for us. Thank you that we gather today and week after week you are so faithful to speak to us from your word, that your word does not return void, that this is food that you give to your children. And so, God, may we feast on it this morning, enjoying it, enjoying it as a gift from our Heavenly Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so we're going to jump right in. Acts chapter 7, page 914 in the Red Bible, page 1184 in the Children's Bible. I'm guessing most of you have heard the famous saying from Winston Churchill, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Guessing most of you have heard that. Well, today, Stephen is going to give his audience and us a history lesson. And while those non-history buffs here, such as myself, may be tempted to tune out such a passage, this history, history lesson is given both to educate us and to warn us and to challenge us. History is very powerful in this way. That's why we have movies made about history, movies made about Pearl Harbor or the Holocaust or other things because it is powerful in shaping and directing and guiding how we might live today. Now last week in Acts chapter 6, we learned that Stephen was ordained as one of the first deacons to care for the physical needs of the church. And as he cared for the physical needs of the church, he also cared for the spiritual needs for the church. In caring for the spiritual needs of the church and the people, he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, this annoyed the Jewish leaders. And so they stirred up some false witnesses against Stephen to have him accused of two heresies. The first heresy that they accused him of, neither of these are true, but the first is that Stephen said Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And the second is that, G- that Stephen said that Jesus will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, I'm not going to address why those were probably not what Stephen actually said, um, at least if he was consistent with Jesus' teaching. But surprisingly, what happens today is, is Stephen is brought before this court, this trial of Jewish leaders. He, these accusations are made against him. And then as is customary, he has an opportunity to respond to these charges to respond to these accusations, to plead guilty or not guilty, and to explain himself. And what is so interesting in this chapter is that while Stephen does in a roundabout way address these particular accusations, mostly what he does is he gives the history of God's people, the history of the world. And he does it to a Jewish audience. 
who knows this history. And he shows how from the history of the Bible, from the history of God's people, it all points to Jesus Christ. Now, we're covering a large portion of Scripture today. And so I want to give you a basic outline of the first 43 verses. That's right, the first 43 verses. We will go all the way up to 60 verses today. We can do it! And so the first 43 verses, the outline is basically like this, okay? So verses 2 through 8 is a history of Abraham. Verses 9 through 16 is the history of Joseph. And verse 17 through 43 is the history of Moses. And these will overlap and they'll intertwine. But just to give you kind of a basic framework as we start reading through it. And so I'm going to read through these first 43 verses. And I might add some comments and some clarifications as we go along. But I actually want to add one more verse and start back in verse 15 of chapter 6. So we'll start there. (coughs) Excuse me. Acts 6, verse 15. And gazing at him, the Jewish council gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then Stephen starts by retelling the history of Abraham. Verse 2, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, which is about halfway to the promised land. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Talking about the land of Israel, the promised land. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, speaking about their time in Egypt. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, who was also known as Israel later. And Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. These guys became kind of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt And over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred. 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Now fast forward 400 years, okay? And it starts the history of Moses. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now, let's just pause there for a second. One of the promises that God gave to Abraham, who was elderly and childless, is that from him and Sarah, who was also elderly and childless and barren, that from them would come a great nation of people, so great, so numerous, more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. And so the people of God moved to Egypt and they grew into this great, fantastic nations of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, okay? Verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, placed in a basket in the river, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When Moses, he, Moses, <coughs> excuse me, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the, like, as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Pause there again just for a second. If you look at the life of Moses, it's very succinctly broken up into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years uh, of Moses is when he's being raised up in Egypt, and then the second 40 years is when he is exiled in Midian, and then the final 40 years is when he returns and leads the people of God out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And so now we go into the second 40 years of Moses's life. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. Sorry, this would be after, so this would be 80 years old of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. 
This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And then here again, Moses' last 40 years, verse 36. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. In this history lesson that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin, there are three major emphasis. And I want to walk through those three major emphasis. And what happens now from this point of the chapter and this point of the speech to the end of his speech, what Stephen is doing is he's taking these three themes that he has demonstrated in the history of Israel, and he is now applying it to their current context, okay? So the first thing that, the first theme that he really targets is the history of God. As we said earlier, one of the accusations made about Stephen was that he claimed that God, that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. Now again, Stephen never really made that claim if he was consistent with Jesus' teaching. But given the strong reaction of the Jewish council, we can determine that the temple was a pretty big deal to them. The reason why it was such a big deal to them was because the temple was where God meets with his people, where God's glory appears, where, God's, where, where God speaks to his people, where the sacrifice for sin was made to God. Now, Stephen is not dismissing the value of the temple, but in this history lesson, Stephen is showing that God is not contained to a temple, that the temple is an instrument of God. But it is not a necessity of God. You see, Stephen starts his speech in verse 2 by pointing out that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia was not the temple. Mesopotamia was not the promised land. And yet God appeared there. He did not need a temple to do that. When Joseph was in Egypt in verse 9, we read that God was with him, that God was at work in Egypt. In verse 31 through 33, after 40 years in Midian, we read that the Lord appeared to Moses. And he said, take off your sandals, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. It was holy ground, even though it was not temple ground. All of this is to remind the council that the Lord God is not contained in temples, that God is active in his work of redemption throughout the world. 
And then we get to verse 44 through 50. And Stephen hammers home the point that God is at work, not just in the temple, but wherever his redemption is flowing forth. Read along with me, verse 44. Verse 44. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of witness. It's a tent where they met with God. In the wilderness, just as he, God, who spoke to Moses, directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought in in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, when they took Jericho and the promised land. So it was until the days of David, which was hundreds of years later, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And then here's Stephen's crescendo, verse 48. On this topic, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Now, what's so interesting about this statement is that he's actually quoting King Solomon. And King Solomon was the one who finally got to build a temple for God. And King Solomon says this right after the building of the temple of God. And so the people are gathered together. They're rejoicing that they had this temple for God to come and to meet with them. And, and, and King Solomon says this. It's recorded in 1 Kings 8, 27. He says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so even Solomon, who's there celebrating with the people of God of this temple that they have, is acknowledging that this temple is not a necessity. It is an instrument that God is going to use, but it's not a necessity because God cannot be contained to a temple. And then Stephen goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah, verse 48. He continues, it says, As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Again, Stephen is not arguing against the importance of the temple, but he's arguing against the necessity of the temple. The temple was important. It was a powerful instrument of God. But that's all that it was. It was an instrument that God could use for a period of time to show the greatness of his glory. And it was a temple that pointed to a greater temple, the temple of Jesus Christ. Prior to planting this well church, I was on staff at New Hope Church on their side of town, great church. And, uh, and it's an Orthodox Presbyterian church, which is pretty similar to our denomination. And I remember one time I went with Pastor Jim to a presbytery, which is a gathering of pastors, to come under care. And, uh, and I went down there, and I was in a suit and tie, if you can imagine that. And I was surrounded by 100 guys in suit and ties who were all probably smarter than me. And I stood up, and I was answering questions to come under care. And I said to them, I go, man, I'm feeling, I'm feeling kind of sick. And so I remember stepping back from the, the podium, and I sat down on a chair that they had. And someone brought me some water, and I was drinking it, and I was sitting there hungover. Hungover is probably not the right word, but with... <laughs> With my head hung over, <laughs> holding the bottle of water, and I just remember sitting there and hearing the thud as the water bottle hit the ground because I passed out. I came to very quickly. It was nothing too, too immense, and, 
And uh, I said, I, I think I'm going to throw up. And so one of the guys in the suit and tie, one of the pastors, he takes off for the back of the sanctuary and goes to the office to go get a trash can. And Pastor Jim, uh, who I love so much, I just, I still remember his face, okay? He was looking at me. He just kind of goes like this, and he's looking around, all right? And uh, he reaches to grab a bowl nearby, and he brings it over, and it's this beautiful stone bowl that they called a baptismal, all right? And so I see the guy coming around the back of the sanctuary at the trash can. I'm thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And the baptismal bowl, yeah, you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Just remember being so embarrassed and looking to Jim and saying, oh, I desecrated this thing. And, And this is what he said. Still remember, he said, it's just furniture. It's just furniture. You know, we are so tempted to overemphasize things like furniture. We're so tempted to over, overemphasize things like buildings, right? I remember in our first few services, someone asked me, when are you guys going to get a building? And I said, when does a baby get a house? I, I was trying to be gracious and loving, but trying to make the point that we're new. We don't have a building. And the person didn't come back because a building was so vital for them to worship God. They couldn't worship God in a chapel at another church or in a school. They needed brick and mortar. You know, maybe you're not like this gentleman, but maybe you find yourself getting really upset about how things are organized up here or, or how things are laid out in the children's wing or downstairs or whatever. Maybe you just find yourself clinging to things so tight. And what Stephen is reminding us of here is that God is not contained to buildings. That it is just furniture, and that all of this, the furniture in the building, is a great and wonderful instrument of God that he has given to us. But it is to point to God. We are not to worship this building, but we are to use this building as an instrument to worship the living God who cannot be contained by buildings. And so just to recap, what is the history of God? God is not contained to buildings. God made the people in materials that made the buildings. And God is at work wherever his redemption is flowing. The second major theme is the history of man. Throughout this history lesson, Stephen also weaves in the historical response of Israel to God's gracious acts of redemption. In verse 9, we read that after God gives this vision to Joseph, It says that the patriarchs, his brothers, became jealous of Joseph. And they sold off their own brother into slavery. Man rejects God's servant, Joseph. Verse 25, when Moses defends the poor and the enslaved and the oppressed Hebrew in Egypt, we read in verse 25 that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand Man rejected God's servant, Moses. And in verse 38 through 43, we read that when God delivers the people out of Egypt, when he brings them into the wilderness, when Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, that they say, where is this Moses? We have no idea. We'd rather go back to Egypt 
but we can't do that. So let's build our own idols. Let's build casts. And so again, in the midst of God's deliverance, in the midst of God's redemption, the people reject God and rebel against him and worship idols. And so Stephen applies this to show that this council of Israel is walking in the same path of rebellion against God and against his prophets. Verse 51. By the way, this is not the way you win friends and influence people, okay? Verse 51, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear. This is Old Testament language for saying you are unregenerate, okay? You are not going to heaven. You are not one of God's true people. That's what he's saying. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, what's really interesting throughout the history lesson, if you go back and look, about, look at it, as Stephen is referring back to Abraham and to Moses and to Joseph and to the patriarchs, he always says, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. But now that he is referring to the unregenerate part of Israel, those that are rebelling against God, he says, your fathers. Verse 52 which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The answer is none. They persecuted all of God's prophets, all of God's messengers. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. George Bernard Shaw said this, We learn from history that we learn nothing from history. That's what Stephen is pointing out to these people. Stephen is accusing the council of repeating history in the most tragic ways. Not only did their fathers reject and kill the prophets of Israel, but now they had rejected and killed the righteous one, God's only son, Jesus Christ. And this is nothing new. They're walking in the steps of their fathers. And if that wasn't enough, Stephen continues. Verse 53, he said, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Remember, they accused Stephen of saying that Jesus was changing the law. And what Stephen is saying here is that they, the Jewish council, the supposed defenders of the law, were not themselves keepers of the law. That it is That they did not keep the law, but rejected the law because they rejected the one who created the law and they rejected the one who fulfilled the law. A phrase which Stephen uses here is the term stiff-necked. Stephen said the Jewish council was stiff-necked. This was a phrase taken from the Old Testament and it's an agricultural metaphor. You see, the ox was one of the most useful animals For the people, the ox was used to till up land and to plow and to things of that sort. And they would guide and direct the ox. But sometimes, no matter how much they tried to guide and direct the ox, the ox would continue to go wherever it wanted. And when it would happen, they would call that ox hard of neck or stiff-necked. And so this term is used throughout scriptures to describe a stubborn people that would not follow the guidance of God through the Holy Spirit. Can I ask you, where are you stiff-necked towards God? What has God called you into obedience to, and you just absolutely refuse 
to go there. Kids, maybe you know God's command to honor your father and mother, but you are so stiff-necked against this command. You are convinced that they have no idea what they're talking about, and you are so angry against them, and you maybe even hate them. You're stiff-necked against the commands of God. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're single. And you know God's command to marry in the Lord or to, to pursue purity before marriage, but, but you just don't think God really understands what you're going through. And so you continue to live a lifestyle that you know is not in accord with God's word. You are so stiff-necked in your rebellion. Maybe you're here and you're married and you know God's command for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially and for wives to respect their husband. But you say, God does not know who I am married to. There is no way he would command that for me. I am the loophole. It is because you are stiff-necked in your rebellion against God. This is the history that we walk in. This is the history of humanity. And it is such a foolish, foolish Foolish history. There is no joy in walking in disobedience against God. There is no joy in our stiff neckedness. Stephen Hawkins, another quote, probably my favorite quote on history, is this. He says, We spend a great deal of time studying history, which, let's face it, is mostly the history of stupidity. That's what the history of man is. The history of man is the history of stupidity, a history of rebelling against a God who loves us and cares for us and delivered us. Wherever you are stiff-necked against God, stop repeating the history of mankind because there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no happiness in rebelling against God. And so you have learned from history. The divine presence of God is wherever he is at work. That human rejection is a constant. But finally, we see the history of deliverance. Again, as we look through the history, we see that God delivered Abraham to the promised land. We see that God delivered Joseph out of of slavery and bondage up into the high ranks of Egypt. We see that God delivered his people who were in bondage in Egypt, out of Egypt through the plagues and through the Red Sea and eventually into the promised land. And now we read of God's deliverance of Stephen. Verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Again, there's God's presence, not in the temple, but in heaven. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is in the shadow of death. And he gets a glimpse of heaven. And what Stephen sees is Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is very interesting, and it's peculiar, because when you read through the Bible, Jesus is not standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Mark 16, Ephesians 1, 
Hebrews chapter 1, 8, 10, 12, all these say Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And Jesus sitting at the right hand of God shows us that Christ is reigning, that the victory has been won at the cross, and he is sitting and ruling and reigning. But here it says Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And the question is, why is Jesus standing at the right hand of God? Well, I think there are two reasons. One reason is because Jesus is standing in defense of his boy, Stephen, when no one else will. But the other reason is because Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen into heaven. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Stephen faced death, as he peered into heaven, he saw with his eyes what the Apostle Paul would later later write with his hands, that for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you die, if you trust in Christ, you're merely graduating, being delivered to a greater place? Jan Boyce was a member here, and last month we held a memorial service for her. And I had remembered about Jan, one of the things I remembered about Jan is that when Jan was getting sick, when her lung collapsed, I went and I visited her in the hospital. And um, she's human, just like any of us, and she was scared and she was frightened and she was anxious. Um, And then later on, after a week or so went by, Jan was diagnosed with cancer, a pretty severe cancer that would most likely be terminal, and it was. And after I came back and followed up with her after she Uh, was given this diagnosis of cancer, one of the things that just so amazed me was that really kind of for the first time, I saw a peace in Jan that surpassed all understanding. She was more peaceful at that time than she ever had been before. And she was actually more joyful than she ever had been before. And she would boldly talk about Jesus more than she ever had before. And I was so amazed by what God was doing through the Holy Spirit. Well, as I as we sat at that memorial service and we talked about our different memories of Jan, what I found out from my good friend Mary was there was a pivotal thing that happened that gave Jan a different perspective, that gave Jan a different attitude. Pastor Chad had gone and visited Jan after she received the diagnosis of cancer. And he read to her Psalm 121, which says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Where does your help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so Pastor Chad's challenge to Jan and Jan's challenge to herself was simply this. Eyes on Christ, Jan. Eyes on Christ. How was Jan able to face death with joy and peace and boldness. Well, it's the same answer as it was for Stephen. Eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. Friends, where are you anxious? Are you anxious about 
work? Are there layoffs and deadlines? Are you anxious about family because of tension and friction and disobedience? Are you anxious about finances? Are you anxious about life? Are you anxious about death? Can I and Stephen and Pastor Chad and Psalm 121 and Jan challenge you this? Eyes on Christ. Set your eyes on Christ, the maker of heaven on earth. Set your eyes on Christ who called you, his people, his church, his prize, the apple of his eye. Set your eyes on Christ for he first set his eye upon you as Hebrew 12 tells us that you were and you are the joy that was set before him, the reason he endured the cross, despising the shame. Set your eyes on Christ who took your sin upon himself and paid for it in full in his torturous death. Set your eyes on Christ who raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, guaranteeing that that is our future as well if we trust in him. Set your eyes on Christ who will one day rise from sitting and stand at the right hand of God to welcome you into his heaven. Set your eyes on Christ for he is your only hope and he is your only deliverer. Let me end with this. The term witness in Greek is the term martis, which, which we get the term martyr. Stephen is the church's first martyr, the first of many to come. Martyr means that Stephen was sharing his faith, sharing the good news of Jesus, and was killed for it. And the question is, why? Why would Jesus, I'm sorry, why would Stephen be willing to share Jesus to the point of even risking his own life? Well, as we peek into the last verse of this chapter, we see why Stephen was so enthused to share his faith, even if it cost him his life. And it is clear that Stephen did not just see his own deliverance from earth to heaven, but Stephen preached fearlessly and ferociously with the hope of the deliverance of his audience, the hope of deliverance for his enemies, the hope of the deliverance for those whose hands murdered his Savior. Verse 60, in his dying breath, we read this. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What will be your dying wish? This was Stephen's dying wish. That his enemies would know the forgiveness of sins. That his enemies would trust in Jesus. That his enemies, those who murdered Christ, would experience the forgiveness of sins. Friends, to be honest with you, when I first read this prayer of Stephen, I thought, man, what a, what a hopeless prayer. The people that he's praying for hate Jesus so much. They hate him so much that Jesus makes him so angry that they're going to kill Stephen just for talking about him. They hate him so much. How useless is this prayer? How impossible is this prayer? But as we read on in the book of Acts, we see that Stephen's prayer was answered, at least in one man. Really, the most unlikely man. You may have missed it in verse 58. There's this side comment. It says, and the witnesses laid down their garments. 
at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was commissioned by the Jews to persecute Christians, to imprison Christians. As a matter of fact, next chapter, first few verses, you'll read that Saul ravaged the church, that he dragged Christians out of their house to throw them into prison. This was his full-time job. This was his passion. But then all this changed when God answers Stephen's prayer. When Jesus comes to Saul and Saul experiences the forgiveness of sins and trusts in Christ as his Savior, and Saul would become, as many of you know, he'd become the Apostle Paul. Friends, you may be here and you may be so overwhelmed by your failures, so overwhelmed by your sin. You may think of the ways that you have failed God and failed your family and failed loved ones time and time and time again. You may be tempted to think that you are the worst sinner that ever lived. But the Bible tells us that you are not the worst sinner that ever lived. Friends, do you know who is the worst sinner to ever live? Don't answer out loud. It is not Hitler. It is not Stalin. And it's not you. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to 1 Timothy, says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says. Who is the worst sinner to ever live? It's the Apostle Paul. And yet even he was not beyond the forgiveness of God. No matter how much sin you bring in here this morning, no how much failure or shame you bring in here this morning, you are not beyond the forgiveness of God. This is what the history lesson teaches us. Why is it so important to study history? Why is it so important to study this history? Because it teaches us the history of God, a relentless pursuer of his people, Because it teaches us the history of man, a foolish rebeller against their creator. But because it tells us the history of deliverance, the forgiveness of God for the worst of sinners. May this history lesson remind us of this one thing. To keep our eyes on Christ. Both in this life and in death and in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how true it is, of how honest it is about the goodness of you, about the rebellion of our hearts, but also the good news of your deliverance for all who trust in you. Lord, thank you that no sinner is beyond your forgiveness. God, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would trust in you and know this great forgiveness that is offered through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to your table, remind us of your great love. Remind us that none of us are beyond your forgiveness. God, I pray that wherever we are stiff-necked in our life, whether it be in our marriage or in our relationships with our family or wherever it might be at work and beyond, God, that you would soften our necks, that we would be able to focus our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus. And that we may learn from history that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are loving. And may we have that peace that surpasses all understanding. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.